From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we bring you our interview with Professor Rashid Khalidi, one of the world's foremost academic scholars on Palestine. My colleague Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Khalidi about his new book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, drawing on a wealth of untapped archival materials and the reports of generations of family members, mayors, judges, scholars, diplomats, and journalists, Professor Khalidi traces a hundred years of colonial war on the Palestinians waged first by the Zionist movement and then Israel, but backed by Britain and the U.S., the great powers of the age. He highlights the key episodes in this colonial campaign from the 1917 Balfour Declaration to the destruction of Palestine in 1948, from Israel's 1982 invasion of Lebanon to the endless and futile peace process. Rashid Khalidi is Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and author of many books, including his most recent, the Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance, 1917 to 2017, which he spoke about with my colleague Khalil Bendi. Your book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance, examines a century of the history of Palestine that began in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration. Why did you select that particular date, and what does it represent for Palestinians? Well, I think it's important because it marks an alliance between the nascent Zionist movement and the greatest imperial power of the age, which was then Great Britain. And it is really the beginning of the war on Palestine. I describe uh, the Balfour Declaration as a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. What the British government was saying, it's a cabinet declaration sent to Lord Rothschild, who was representing the Zionist movement or was, was intended to take this back to the Zionist movement. What the British government was essentially saying is there is a people in Palestine who have a right to a national home. That's the Jewish people. And there are non-Jews who have no political rights, are not mentioned by name in the declaration, and have only civil and religious rights. So this was essentially a declaration of war, stating that Britain would implant this population, uh, the Jewish population of Palestine at the time during World War One, was maybe five or six percent of the total. So they were saying, you five percent plus people we will help bring in are going to be the people who will have national rights here. And the Palestinians don't really exist, and that population would not have those rights. So I consider at the beginning of the conflict in its dimensions, that in the dimensions that it's had for the past hundred years, i.e. a great power patron supporting this settler colonial movement in its attempt to essentially replace the indigenous population of, of Palestine. And thus the insistence on the term settler colonialism as opposed to mm -hmm. just, just the more generic colonialism. Explain to us a little bit the, the distinction, the nuance. Why is the term settler colonialism so critical? Well, I mean, colonialism would be, you know, British rule over India. The British did not intend to implant a, uh, an English settler population or to supplant the Indians. Uh, they intended to exploit the Indians. They intended to rule over them. And that's, you know, classical colonialism. By contrast, 
in a place like Algeria or a place like Kenya, a white European population is brought in from the mother country, settled, takes the land away from the native population, and is intended to supplant it to be the only group that has political rights there. In India, the British ruled India, but they, they didn't take away the land of the Indians and give it to white European British settlers. Um, that's what happens in North America. That's what happens in Australia and New Zealand. That's what happens in Algeria. It's what happens in Kenya and South Africa. And that's settler colonialism, where you bring in a white European settler population, classically from the metropole, to supplant a native population and to be the only group that has rights in that new setup. And therefore, one of the foundational myths of Zionist propaganda, when it was no longer acceptable for people to just take this phenomenon of settler colonialism as normal, one of their foundational myths as opposed to what was said in the, really was said in the Balfour Declaration, a land without people for people without the land. Right. Uh, in your book, you bring a poignant narrative from a Palestinian family's uh, perspective and how Palestinians were affected by 100 years of this onslaught against the supposedly non-existent people, the Palestinian people. Right. Why is it important to bring this other narrative? We're, we're usually more familiar with this triumphant, this happy ending story of uh, people uh, chased uh, 2,000 years ago from their homeland and finally they're back after many tribulations. Well, one thing that I argue is that the biblical and the 2,000-year-old story, it's obviously important because of people's belief in the Bible, but it has almost nothing to do with what actually happens in Palestine from the beginning of this conflict. There is, of course, a millennial Jewish connection to the land of Israel, to Palestine. That, that's indisputable. That's indubitable. And, th and there was always a desire. The idea of a return uh, was always there. But it was a return that was understood in eschatological terms, in terms of, of something that would happen through the intervention of God. And at the end of days, it was not something that was to be done by man. And it had nothing to do with the idea of restoration or establishment of Jewish sovereignty and statehood and the building of a modern nation state. This is a 19th century conceit and the conflation of these two uh, ways of seeing the world, the sort of biblical view and the modern nationalist view that Zionism adopts is one of the great con games of, of modern history. Uh, every national movement creates a mythology. Uh, Palestinians are told about the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Philistines. Actually, modern Palestine has nothing to do with the Jebusites, the Canaanites. Uh, people want to believe that. It gives them a sense of rootedness. There's sort of a connection in that the same place had these peoples. But we have no more connection. We as Palestinians have no more connection to the Jebusites than do the French to the Gauls. But the French, you know, were teaching our ancestors the Gauls to little children for generations because it's part of the mythology of nationalism. So the, the important thing, I think, is to argue that this is a modern political conflict engendered by a modern political movement, Zionism, which is a national movement at the same time it was a settler colonial movement. And that would not have succeeded as it succeeded without the backing of enormous, powerful uh, allies, the Great Britain and much later the United States. And that's the genesis of this conflict. In the view of early Zionists, of Herzl, of Zev Jabotinsky, and the private views of other Zionist leaders, they understood perfectly well there was an indigenous population that they were going to supplant. And Jabotinsky said it, says it the most bluntly of all. He says every indigenous population, and Jabotinsky, of course, would be the founder of the strain of Zionism from which today's Likud party has grown, 
prime ministers like uh, Sharon and Netanyahu and Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir or all of that political trend. Jabotinsky was very, very clear about the colonial nature of the Zionist project at the same time as he, of course, argued that the land did belong to the Jews. Yes, and one of the, actually the founder of, of the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion, who was first prime minister, used to joke with his cohorts that the poor schmucks of those Palestinians are probably the, the real connection to the ancient Hebrews. If there anything, there's anything left of those guys, it must be them. Well, but, yeah, in an early stage in his life, he understood that there was a connection between uh, the Palestinian population and the ancient populations of Palestine, which may or may not have been the case. And another important myth perpetuated by those who wrote history to this day, they say the victors mm -hmm. write history, and this is reflected in the Western media uh, day in, day out, is that somehow this, the real conflict in Palestine is one of secular hatreds between two camps, basically that anti-Semitism within the Arab world is the only reason really to resist Israeli expansionism. Has there been any such long simmering hatred between Arabs and Jews as happened in Europe with the anti-Semites of Europe? And does that help in any way explain what the conflict is in Palestine and Israel? No, there is not anything like the kind of vicious Jew hatred that characterized uh, European society, where there was a there was a religious basis for it. The way in which the the Bible, the, the New Testament, is understood was understood by the Catholic Church, actually in Vatican II, in the 20th century, uh, was that the Jewish people as a whole were responsible for killing Christ or bore some responsibility. So the idea of Jews as Christ killers was that was a a theological basis for anti-Semitism, and that anti-Semitism led to the expulsion of Jews from many, many European countries, from France for a time, from England for a time, from many others. Nothing like that existed in the Muslim world. There were periods of discrimination. Uh, you did not have a society of equality like all pre-modern societies that were organized on the basis of religion. Muslims were seen as having you know, the upper hand in society. But both Jews and Christians were seen as people of the book and had a, a status within Muslim society that was completely different. Uh, than the status of Jews in Christian in Christian Europe, whereas I've said the, the persecution was ferocious and really unending for 2,000 years. Um, there's nothing like that in the relations between Arabs and Jews. So this myth is just about really distracting people from the real problem, which... Well, it's a modern, it's essentially a modern attempt to paint the Arabs with the classical anti-Semitism of Europe. And it's based on a, on a very peculiar reading of history, which misses a great deal, I think, in the interest of, you know, modern interest of the state of Israel and of its, of its bad relations with many, many Arab countries and with the, the Palestinians, obviously. And yet this is the general narrative that Westerners are familiar with, the one of Israel simply being there victimized by its neighbors, the Arabs, who for some reason, probably, again, anti-Semitism, will not tolerate the, the very existence of Israel. Your predecessor, the late Edward Said, was famously shunned by U.S. media throughout his career, and, and you as well have suffered from attempts to destroy your career. Before you became the Edward Said uh, Professor of Modern Arab Studies, Columbia University, I remember you undergoing this severe concerted effort to, to stop you from becoming professor. Remind us a little bit what happened back then. This was, I think, in 2003? 
2003. Uh, yeah, I got the chair in 2003. It actually was not a, so much an effort to stop me from uh, becoming Edward Said professor as it was an attack on Columbia and its Middle East program and its Middle East faculty, including me. It started, I suppose, before I was appointed, but it really, uh, it included uh, attacks on many of my colleagues and on programs, some of which I was involved in or in charge of, like the Middle East Institute at Columbia, which I ran for five years back in the early 2000s. And it's a, it's a campaign that actually has continued to have some relevance because you can see that some of these attacks have continued on me and on, on some of my colleagues here at Columbia, as well as now on students for their activism. And they and we and our programs are all smeared with the claim that we're all anti-Semites. There's this continuing effort to stifle dissent in academia in general, in U.S. academia when it comes to Israel-Palestine. As we speak, and constitutional laws against expressing support for the BDS movement are being aggressively peddled, both on local and national levels. Tell us more about this current state of uh, freedom or, or lack thereof when it comes to teaching the history of Palestine and trying to uh, reestablish some of the historical facts. Well, what is going on is actually quite sinister, essentially because there is a change on American campuses, because there is a change among many people in the Jewish community, among young people, uh, in the base of the Democratic Party, many, many segments of American society, and European society for that matter. A quite well-organized international campaign has been launched against BDS. One of the key figures is the Minister of Strategic Affairs, a man named Gilad Erdan in Israel, whose job is to coordinate these efforts. He's like the czar of the anti-BDS campaign. It includes powerful, well-financed organizations backed by millionaires and billionaires in this country. It includes uh, organizations in Europe who all, all are singing from exactly the same hymn sheet. They're saying the same exact thing in Britain or in Germany or in France or in the United States or in Israel about BDS, about activism in support of, of Palestinian rights. And it's sort of the, how should I put it? It's, it's something that, that, that is so hysterical because I think they're, they're sort of, they're somewhat desperate. They, they haven't much to say when people point out the discriminatory nature of Israeli laws or the oppression that Palestinians are subjected to or other aspects of Israel's conduct vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. There's no real response to any of those things. So they resort to these smear tactics of saying, of trying to basically shut down debate by claiming that any critique of Israel or of Zionism or any advocacy for Palestinian rights or, or calls for peaceful protest against Israel along the lines of, of boycott, the divestment and sanctions uh, is motivated by anti-Semitism. It's the anti-anti-Semitism of scoundrels, in my view. When they don't have the ability to come out and argue, they try and shut the argument down. I, I should say that in the United States, we are very fortunate that we have the First Amendment which guarantees freedom of speech. And whenever these cases have come up before the courts, uh, these kinds of laws and these kinds of efforts have been struck down. It's really hard to argue that a, a boycott campaign is in some way uh, discriminatory when a boycott has been always historically everywhere a peaceful weapon of the oppressed against their oppressors. Boycott started in Ireland with Irish peasants protesting against the land agent of their local British English landlord a man named Captain Boycott. That was the land agent, and they boycotted him. It was a peaceful tactic against oppression, in this case of the Irish by the English. 
The Indians picked it up. The South Africans picked it up. Our civil rights movement picked it up. The outrageous idea that this is anything but a tactic to be used, peaceful tactic to be used against oppressors is, is monstrous. And, you know, fortunately, we have a First Amendment that sooner or later, once these things go through the courts, uh, will protect this kind of activity. In your uh, book, uh, 100 Years War in Palestine, you allude to the anachronistic nature of the Zionist project. You say that Great Britain and the U.S. have been trying to do the impossible, impose a colonial reality in Palestine in a post-colonial age. Right. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, this is actually an insight from the late Tony Judd, who was a friend and, and, yes, and is a, we, was a very deep thinker on, on these matters. And Tony said something like, you know, Zionism is anachronistic in the sense that it's a, it's a 19th century colonial settler movement operating in a 20th century context. When the Zionists first allied with Britain, or when before that, Theodore Herzl tried to get the support of Imperial Germany or the Ottoman Sultan or, or colonial France in the years before World War I, unsuccessfully, it was fashionable. Colonialism was fashionable. Colonial settler regimes were still being established all over the world. And allying yourself with the great imperial powers seemed like a very good idea. After World War II, everything changed. The great colonial empires were broken up, the era of decolonization began, and colonialism was in a bad odor suddenly. And so it's in this sense that had something like Zionism started 150 years earlier, it might well have been successful. I mean, look at what happened to indigenous populations across Australasia and North America. They were subjugated, they were decimated, they were conquered, and they were shut up in the case of the United States, for example, on small reservations, on a fraction of the land that they once owned and controlled. So that's what happened in the 18th and 19th centuries with settler, many settler colonial regimes. They weren't all as successful. In the case of Algeria, they failed. In the case of Kenya, in the case of South Africa. But um, where they succeeded, they, they were operating in a favorable environment. Zionism, my, my argument, is not operating in a favorable environment. We're past the colonial age. Uh, the fact that they have succeeded in masking one aspect, one essential aspect of the nature of what's happening in Palestine is, is a brilliant public relations coup on their part. But it doesn't, it doesn't cover up the fact that this is essentially what we're talking about. And it's, it's most apparent today in, in the occupied territories in the West Bank, where you can actually see colonies of settlers take, still to this day taking land away from the indigenous native Palestinian population in order to establish Jewish-only communities on hilltops or wherever in the West Bank and around East Jerusalem. This new awareness, uh, this growing awareness in the West, is very recent. It's maybe over the past 10, 15 years, roughly coinciding with the start of the BDS movement in Palestine. The struggle is not new. It didn't start in 2005. Uh, what do you attribute, finally, this new situation where younger people, people are more broadly aware of what happened in Palestine in spite of all the, the hegemonic power of Zionist and pro-Israel media? Well, that's a really good question. 
and I don't have a very good answer to it. I think a, a number of things may, may be at work here. One is the growth of a much more self-assured, confident, assimilated Arab American and Muslim American community. Most Arab Americans and most Muslim Americans arrived in the United States after the racist immigration laws that were established in the 20s were liberalized in 1965. So for decades from the 60s onwards and, and before that, you either had a very tiny population of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, or you had a population of first generation people who were not integrated, not assimilated, didn't speak English, had one foot back in the old country and one foot here, and felt insecure and were subject to Islamophobia and the kind of discrimination that all first generation immigrants, whether they were Irish back in the day or Germans or Jews or, or Italians suffered. Today, things have changed. Uh, today, you have a, a second and third generation of people born in the United States, educated in the United States, speaking perfect English, having complete self-confidence, knowing their rights, knowing the Constitution, understanding the political system. Some of them have become established and have, you know, are modest amounts of money that they contribute to political causes or, or, or to activist movements. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is a change, I think, in the in the Jewish community. Older people are understandably still traumatized by the experiences of their parents in the era of the Holocaust. And for them, it's understandably a formative experience. They then were told that Israel was in danger of extinction from its very beginnings. And this is a plausible argument. There were all of these Arabs and there was a very tiny number of Israelis. It wasn't true, but it was a plausible argument. And it was something that, that right up through the 60s, uh, was reinforced by all kinds of elements of popular culture, movies, television, novels, uh, magazines, uh, and so on and so forth. The precarity of Jewish existence everywhere, historically, the precarity of Israel, was something that that older generation felt in their bones. And it's very hard to talk to some people of that generation, because for them, those are formative experiences. The establishment of Israel against what seemed like enormous odds against the background of the Holocaust, when six million Jews, as many as the Nazis could kill, as many as they could arrest and kill, were murdered in the death camps. So those formative experiences for that generation left indelible marks. Younger people, whether they're Jews or not Jews, but in the Jewish community especially, they're aware of those things. And some of them are still influenced by those things, but many of them are not and don't see Israel as a tiny little beleaguered outpost against the hordes of raving, lunatic, anti-Semitic Arabs. Why don't they see it that way? Because Israel is, is a nuclear superpower. Israel hasn't really been in much danger as an as existential danger, if we talk realistically, and many of these young people are realistic, for a generation or two. So they don't see things the way people did in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, the people who grew up in those years. They see things very differently. They see Israel not as tiny David up against a Goliath. They see Israel as a Goliath, as a very powerful state oppressing, many of them do, oppressing the Palestinians. There are a couple other things. Younger people generally uh, travel more, know more languages, have access to media that their elders never did. You know, when I was a kid, you had three TV networks and you had newspapers, and that was it. That's who gave you information. There was no other source of information. I don't know a student who depends on television or newspapers for their news. They have social media, they have access to websites and, and, and stuff from all over the world. 
that their parents and grandparents couldn't have dreamed of. And so they're much better informed and they're smarter about the world. Uh, and it's a lot harder to fool them with fairy tales about tiny little Israel. Now, they are, there is a brainwashing machine, birthright trips to Israel, magical mystery tours where they're lied to systematically. The fact that you know, people who have relatives in Israel know that they're Israeli relatives, many of them have very extreme views and, and they're influenced by them. But in spite of that, I think that younger people, whether in the Jewish community or outside, are generally more open-minded. And I think that, that all of these factors together uh, have something to do with the fact that I, I agree with you, that this is, a, this is a 21st century phenomenon. There was nothing like this 25, 25, 35, 40 years ago. Nothing like it. Nothing at all like it. In your book, The Hundred Years of War in Palestine, you document all the important crucial moments, the, the, all the different wars that were waged uh, against Palestine, which are always uh, portrayed as symmetrical as if you have two equal parties going at each other and all, right. often right. often really more of an onslaught on, on one pretty particularly helpless, if courageous and, and resisting party. It reminds me a little bit of the, the argument the Turks have about the Armenian genocide. It wasn't really a genocide, it was a war. Mm. One crucial period that you document, among many others, is the dramatic development of Zionist ideology within the U.S., both within the Jewish community in response to the horrors of the Holocaust in Europe, but also within broader society in general. You show how Zionist influence first impelled Harry Truman in the okay. 40s, right. what was right. until then a more balanced policy towards Palestine. Tell us more about this crucial uh, transition, this period when Zionism went mainstream in this country. Well, I mean, I touch on this in the book. One of the things that we don't realize is that the Zionist movement did assiduous work in the United States from a very, very early stage. You know, David Ben-Gurion, who, as you mentioned, when in his youth thought of, you know, the Canaanites as sort of the ancestors, uh, possibly, of the, of the existing Palestinian population, and as people who would, and also of the Palestinians as descended from the ancient Jewish population of Palestine. He is someone who, in one sense, wanted to assimilate. He learned Ottoman Turkish. He went to Istanbul. He went to law school there. He enlisted in the Ottoman army with his comrade, Yitzhak ben Zvi, who became the second president of the state of Israel after Chaim Weizmann. But at a certain point, he and ben Zvi were expelled. They came to the United States, and they spent three years working here from 1916 to 1919 building up the base of the Zionist movement. And what they were able to do with their comrades, many other people were engaged in this effort, obviously, many of, many of them, most of them actually Americans, American Jews, was that they succeeded in building up an independent political and financial base for the Zionist movement, which even though it was allied with Great Britain from 1917 onwards, uh, was never controlled by the British and never financed by the British. It had its own independent base in Europe, in the United States, and its own independent finances. And this is very important, the American connection. The capital transfers that were made to build up the Jewish sector of the economy of Palestine were phenomenal. They were humongous. They were an enormous proportion. They were over 40% of the Jewish gross domestic product of the Jewish sector of the Palestinian economy in the 1920s. I mean, can you think of 40% of what you're producing coming in every year for 10 years in capital transfers. That largely came from the United States. 
So having that external base was a crucial to the success of Zionism. And that went enormous information efforts with that went uh, efforts to convince ordinary Americans of the merits of Zionism, such that by the time uh, World War II comes around and the United States comes to replace Britain as the great power in the Middle East or begins to replace Britain as the great power in the Middle East, Truman already has not just voters among the Jewish community, but voters all over the United States who, for reasons having to do with the way they read the Bible, for their sympathy for Jews after the Holocaust, were sympathetic to the Zionist cause. As you point out in your book, the BDS movement has done more to legitimize the Palestinian cause in the past couple of decades than Palestinian or Arab leaderships over time. And continuing... So, and yes, yeah, certainly in recent decades, absolutely. Yeah. We've seen all the defeats that the Arab countries first and, and then even the Palestinian movement, the PLO and what have you, had to endure. And, you know, with the BDS, all of a sudden, just this emphasis on not copying in the Algerian model, for example, but really dreaming of a civil rights type of movement where you're peaceful, you're just asking no more than just equal rights. With the, right. the continuing annexation of large swaths of the already shrunken Palestinian territories, the only promising way forward seems the, the fight for equal rights. Right. And that's uh, something that seems to strike a chord worldwide because people are familiar with this type of struggle. They've seen it in the 60s and, and on in different countries, certainly in the USA. How do you see this evolution and could it be a possible answer for, to the Palestinian question that is a one-state solution as opposed to the now largely discredited two-state solution? I think you're conflating two things and they're, they're, both, they're both important. The first thing is the importance of, of this civil society generated uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which doesn't actually advocate any specific outcome in Palestine. It's agnostic on that. But what it argues for is equal rights. And I, I argue in my book that that's the key to everything, that whatever outcome we want in whatever form we want it has to involve completely equal rights, uh, national rights, political rights, civil rights, religious rights for everybody. I am of the opinion that Israel has worked so intensively and so successfully over the past 53 years since it occupied uh, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, uh, in particular has worked in the West Bank and East Jerusalem to make any kind of Palestinian state there impossible. I'm, I'm convinced that, that that process has proceeded to the point that it's hard to see how, how you can realistically call for a two-state solution. On the other hand, I think it's a one-state solution should admit as well that how you get from the current de facto one-state solution, which is what we have, is yes, one state yes, between exactly. the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, uh, in which one people dominates another, and in which there's one sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty, there's one people with national rights, the Jewish people, there's and so on and so forth. Two an equitable one-state solution is equally hard. So I would argue that what we have to figure out is how we get to a, a situation where both peoples and all individuals have equal rights. That if somebody has a relative and they want to bring them and become a citizen of this country, this group be it not be allowed to do it, and this group being allowed to do it is simply not acceptable. 
So I have a family that goes back in Jerusalem for hundreds and hundreds of years. I can't live there. I have to go there as a visitor. Whereas somebody else, because of his religion or her religion, uh, immediately becomes a citizen. That's not equitable. So whatever, whatever framework you have, one state, two states, cantons, I don't really care myself. I think it's very hard to get to any different state than the state we're in. We're in a one state a situation right now, but it's a bad one. It's an unequal one. And that's the beauty, I think, of BDS. It focuses on these issues of equality. And in liberal democratic systems like the United States and, and European countries, even though liberal democracy is under threat in, in many countries, in those systems, the kind of, of systematic legal constitutional discrimination that characterizes Israel ultimately is unacceptable. I mean, what Israel is doing now is ruling over more than 4 million people who have absolutely no rights and are under its complete, absolute and total control. The only sovereign is this Israeli state, and the only people who decide what happens in that state are the Israelis who vote uh, for their Knesset. Palestinians don't have that right, except Palestinian citizens, obviously, of the state of Israel. The couple of million Palestinians who, who do have citizenship rights, but who are also discriminated against, uh, albeit much less than other Palestinians. So I see BDS as very important, exactly as you said, partly because it's done things that, unfortunately, the Palestinian leadership in the past 15 or 20 years has simply not done, or even more. And that the Arab states have woefully failed to do, but also because of this idea that it puts forward of equality. One of the many things I learned from reading your book is you point out at some point that even in Israel's declaration of independence, it actually declared that, quote, complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex would be guaranteed. So that's an interesting and ironic tidbit that I wasn't aware of. Well, and that Declaration of Independence, Israel is, Israel is like the United Kingdom in that it doesn't have a written formal constitution. It has basic laws that together do the constitution, like in, in the British case, you know, Magna Carta and the Act of Union of 1707. Those are, those are laws with constitutional force. Israel recently passed a basic law which has constitutional force, which establishes the exact opposite of what's in its Declaration of Independence. Yes. In arguing that there's only one people with the right of national self-determination in the land of Israel. And in arguing that the settlement, meaning of Jews, in the land is a national... In other words, it systematizes and constitutionalizes and legalizes various forms of discrimination and preference uh, within the society in ways that actually contradict the aspirations expressed in the Israeli Declaration of Independence. Jorge Santayana famously declared that those who don't know their history are condemned to repeat it. The U.S., in my opinion, has never really bothered to teach their children to reflect upon the history of settler colonialism in a way that's a little bit deeper and, and more humanistic. And this history of colonialism in the U.S. and its lasting effects still is tilting the playing field or the, the way to look at Palestine, witness the astounding tolerance and support today, about half the population, of a hate monger like uh, Donald Trump. It's actually less than half the population. Less if you half, look at, I at the base, I hope base so. support for this president, it's <laughs> right. just over 40%, but, 40, but it's 40, still, it's, a lot of it's people. Appalling, appallingly large. Given this situation, is it possible to discuss settler colonialism in Palestine out of context without having previously sensitized Americans to their own history 
which mirrors some 200 years ago what is happening today before our very eyes in Palestine. Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, and I, I touch on it. I think that this is a country that has not come to grips with its own history of settler colonialism, as you say, or of the central role played by slavery in increasing the wealth of this country. I mean, some of the most iconic buildings in this nation's capital were built by slaves, uncompensated slave labor, built the Capitol building, built the White House, built you know some of the, the most iconic symbols of the United States. I don't think people have fully come to grips with that or any more than they've come to grips with settler colonialism. And it is a problem, I think, in that the idea of privilege and the idea of discrimination is something that I think we're still having to struggle with in the United States. And so a society like Israel's, which is based on superiority of one people over another and you know systematic constitutionally protected discrimination unfortunately many people see that there's a kindred nature to the two experiments and in fact a lot of the propaganda that like film like exodus where arabs are seen as you know savages trying to undo these people bringing progress uh, mirrors the the sort of cowboy and indian caricature of the american west and so there, there are issues there that I think, underlying issues there that I think make it hard to put forward an analysis like this, but I thought it was important nonetheless. And what is your general reaction when you hear, even on the left, people of generally good intentions mention the 50-year occupation of Palestine, now 53 years of occupation. Right. I think that's why books like yours are important. Is your book receiving the kind of attention it deserves? I, there's been this hegemonic anti-Palestinian media attitude. It's not changing very fast. There, right. Tell us a little bit how a book like yours is being received, reviewed, etc. Well, it's, it's, it's early days. You know, the book came out on the 28th of January. So we have, what, a couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks, not even four weeks that it's been out. So it's impossible to say. It's a little too early. There is enormous resistance in the mainstream media to any challenge to that hegemonic narrative. I mean, there's a willingness to accept certain slight modification, criticism of Israel's policies, its occupation policies, for example, in a paper like the New York Times. But when you go any deeper than that, there's enormous resistance because the people who run these papers are, are older people who cling to the old ideas. I think it should be said that the mainstream media is not where you're going to see change very quickly. It's every other media. It is social media. It's places that are not run by 85 and 75-year-old billionaires, own, like Murdoch, who owns the Wall Street Journal, the, the London Times, the New York Post, or the people who own the big networks, or the people who own you know, any of the other parts of the mainstream media, or the old people who edit these papers. We're talking about 70-year-olds and 65-year-olds and 55-year-olds for whom these new ideas are anathema. So I think you have to look at non-mainstream media to see the changes that are taking place. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I, mean, I have an interesting anecdote. The Wall Street Journal, to my surprise and my editor's surprise, initially contacted my editor, the, my, my publisher, and said, we want to publish an excerpt of your book. Wow. And I was shocked. I mean, the Wall that Street is, Journal, owned by Rupert Murdoch, the most right-wing newspaper in the United States, the most virulently anti-Palestinian op-ed page. And even before Rupert Murdoch, it's one of the most virulently pro, not just pro-Israel, but pro-Likud. I mean, it's one of the most Precisely. conservative newspapers. Precisely. Precisely. So I was a little surprised. 
anyway, they said, we'll, we want this excerpt. We made some modifications. Everybody was in, in accord. They said they were going to publish it right after the pub date, which was January 28th. As the 28th came closer and it became apparent that the Trump so-called peace plan was about to be released, they, the, the editor contacted me. It happens to be somebody I know, the editor of the Culture and Arts page. And he said, can you make a few modifications to, you know, to fit it with these, this, these breaking developments? And I did, and they, they accepted them. And we were all set to go. And the day before it was supposed to be published, this editor wrote me and said, I have some bad news. And he gave me an explanation of why they weren't going to publish it. And I've learned reading a New York Times piece on another issue at the Wall Street Journal that, in fact, Paul Gigot, who's the op-ed editor, is in charge of the culture and arts page. So he obviously vetoed this at the last minute. And my publisher then gave the whole story to The Intercept, who published the excerpt. Now, who reads the Wall Street Journal? A lot of old white guys, rich white guys. Uh, who reads The Intercept? A lot of much younger people of various orientations. It doesn't have the reach of the Wall Street Journal, obviously. But I don't think I was going to convince a lot of Wall Street Journal readers with that excerpt. Whereas I think that everybody who read not just the excerpt from my book, but the, the story of how it was not published by the Wall Street Journal in The Intercept, you know, probably learned something. So I don't think that we've broken through with the mainstream media. I don't think we will for quite a while. But I think there's another meet. The point is there are all kinds of other media out there now. Yes, and uh, as you were saying, the old establishment media, as well as establishment political factions in this country, will probably be the last to follow this change that is happening on the grassroots level and at the level of younger people, the younger generation. For example, this last question I'd like to ask you, mm -hmm. uh, notwithstanding his otherwise progressive views until his first presidential candidacy in 2016, Bernie Sanders had never distinguished himself particularly from the pro-Israel political establishment in Washington, but he has since made substantial strides in the direction of a more balanced policy in the Middle East, largely, I think, because of his younger uh, following. They were the ones guiding him and saying, look, you've got to do better than what you've done uh, up to this point. Do you think a President Sanders uh, might be an improvement in America's policy in that region? Well, I think I think credit has to be given here. I think that Senator Sanders, even in his 2016 campaign, but much, much more in this campaign, has opened up with other brave politicians, Betty McCollum, Rashid Atleb, Ilhan Omar, and several others, have opened up the space for debate on Palestine. They're under virulent, savage attack, of course, for doing that. Sanders refusing to go to AIPAC got an incredible reaction just today from AIPAC and from uh, other pro-Israel groups. But they've already really opened up the space of what can be said, and it, within the Democratic Party at least, uh, of debate around Palestine. Now, that said, let's be realistic. The bulk of the Democratic Party leadership is old and conservative. It is formed of people like the Clintons, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and others who are dedicated to the status quo as far as Israel is concerned, whatever their personal beliefs may be. In the case of Schumer, I think he's a dedicated Zionist. In the case of others, I think those may be opportunistic positions, but they're positions that they've held for their entire political lives. And that's not going to change. 
And that's also the position of most elected Democratic politicians. So even if Sanders gets the nomination, even if Sanders wins the presidency, even if Sanders is able to carry the Senate and you have a Democratic Senate and Democratic House, most of the Democrats in the House and the Senate and the party leadership are still very committed to a pro-Israel orientation. And while the president can issue executive orders and change a great deal, any president still has to deal with Congress. And that's only talking about the political leadership. There's also money. The Democratic Party was moved by the Clintons far to the right, but it was also anchored in big, big, big money financing. Uh, It's very dependent on Wall Street. It's very dependent on Silicon Valley. It's very dependent on Hollywood. Those are realities of the Democratic Party. That's where a lot of the money comes from. Now, uh, an Obama or more recently a Sanders countered that up to a point with small donors. I think Elizabeth Warren is doing the same thing and many other Democratic politicians are doing the same thing. But there's still a very important influence of big money. And much of that money is very pro-Israel. It's very clear. Uh, You have people like Haim Sabah and he's a one-issue guy. He's one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. There are several others like him uh, in the world of finance, in the world of of Silicon Valley. So even a President Sanders with a Democratic Senate and House is not going to be able to change everything. He would be able to change some things. I think to his credit, he and a few others have already changed a lot of things, at least in terms of the debate within the Democratic Party and to some extent the political debate in the United States. I mean, whoever whoever said you can't go to AIPAC? Warren has said... (laughs) <laughs> this is new. This is brand new. And even his evolution on that narrow front is encouraging because the last time when he broke new ground by being essentially the first serious presidential candidate to refuse to go to APAC, he had given a diplomatic excuse of he was busy with some other events. But this time he came out outright and said, no, I do not do this kind of thing. I don't believe in what APAC is doing, etc., etc. So things are evolving rather quickly and hopefully, at least in small ways. Anything you'd like to mention before we adjourn? I'm very grateful that you took the time. I hope that your listeners have a chance to buy the book, have a look at it, and that it helps them to you know, understand the kind of framework that I'm arguing for. There's change going on in this country, and I think that ideally we're going to see changes, maybe not in 2020, but undoubtedly in the, in the near future. And I hope that you know this book can contribute to that.